Our children may be dismissed at this time for Children's Church. They're actually a fuller group than we expected this morning, so congratulations for being so brave. Actually, over here, the roads aren't too terrible. Over my way, they're a little bit more sketchy, at least the back roads are. But we understand more is coming in tonight, so we trust that everybody will stay home and be safe. For our time this morning in the Word, we're returning to John chapter 1. I hope, like you or like me, many of you are beginning to appreciate the words of John like I haven't before, and given the time and study, it tends to open up your eyes to things that you haven't seen before, and I'm, I'm learning from my own study, and I trust that our time together in this gospel is going to be rich for us as believers and as a church. I'm going to begin in prayer, and then I would like to call your attention to the reading of this passage from verse 14 to verse 18. Our God in heaven, thank you for being a God of love. We're grateful for your Son. Our time this morning in the Word is going to focus the attention of our hearts and minds on that Son, who John calls the Word. And His revelation of you should speak to our hearts this morning, and we ask that your Spirit would have that administration and facilitate that kind of understanding of you, your Son, your Spirit, that perhaps we have not had before. Focus our attention on the things here in the Word. Give to me the ability to speak on these things, but I pray that you would unveil your glory for us to see this morning as John so vividly and richly describes the beauty of your Son, the majesty of Jesus Christ. We pray to that end in Christ's name. Amen. Got all tangled up in the cords there. Um, I was... I was uh, a few of us were chuckling a little bit about the new dimension that we are in our community, and here you see that we're putting cameras up in our our building, um, and it's just to keep us a little bit safer to make sure that things that are happening outside uh, we're aware of, but sometimes there are things happening outside as you and I are coming in that maybe we don't want people to be aware of, and it causes me to think, you know, when we don't think anybody else is watching and you're just about to do something, you may look to the right or the left to see if anybody's watching, and then you go ahead and do that thing, whatever it is. Now you're going to be caught on the cameras, and those cameras are actually recording so we can go back and investigate those things that we do. So it's good for you to know, don't do those things like picking your nose that you otherwise wouldn't want people to see. This, this morning, our attention is focused on the visibility of God through Jesus Christ. And as I'm looking at the news and the current of events, even these past couple of years, we see a very troubling turn even in our own nation. Um, things that I didn't think we would have to deal with, we are now dealing with. The past 30-some years, we've been dealing more and more intensely with the subject of killing unborn babies. And for you and I as believers, this seems like a rather obvious thing for humanity to see. And it troubles me, especially when our Washington state government is so promoting almost the glory of this thing that they call women's rights, but it's actually killing the unborn. And then we focus all of this attention out in the Puget Sound on the, the orca whales and their calving and 
the reproduction, and it's very disturbing to us that the population is going down, while at the same time we are promoting the killing of our own unborn. You and I see this as puzzling. But we also wonder, why does the world around us not see this? There's a problem with our vision, isn't there? And it was the same back in Jesus' day, because as John is pointing out, when the light of God came to this world, it enlightened every man, and according to verse 9, every man just didn't see it. They didn't get it. But then in verse 12, but those that did receive. And then in verse 14, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and John says, we saw it. We saw the glory of this thing that God had done. This is where we are this morning. And though we're going to focus on verse 14 to 18, I'm going to begin verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And our study will begin here in verse 15. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before Me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given... Through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Last week we looked at that magnificent 14th verse which describes to us the incarnate Word, the incarnate Christ, that God has come to us in a body of flesh. And the reality is when that body of flesh entered this world, this world did not see the glory of that incarnate God. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm sorry, that this is the reality of the natural man. They do not discern the things of God. They cannot. And Paul said if they could have discerned this, the rulers of this age would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But the reality is they did not see his glory. They did not understand who they were crucifying. And Paul goes on to write, the only reason that you and I know these things is because the Spirit of God has revealed the glory of Christ to us. This 14th verse is a richly Christological presentation of the Son of God. And with that truth in mind, with that 14th verse in mind, we're going to move to our second part of our study this morning of those last four verses Five verses, I'm sorry, verse 14 to verse 18. Um, we're going to consider the second part of that as the preeminent word. Because in verses 15, 16, and 17, I believe that John is showing us in a much more expanded way the glory of the incarnate Christ that we see there in verse 15. 
And I think it must be pointed out here that while I break these things up into different headings on your note sheet, please understand these are not separate thoughts. We only use those headings to help the flow of our own study. But John is building on our understanding, building our vision, if you will, of the glory of the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. So we move from verse 14 to verse 15, and he's building or expanding our understanding, building our vision of who this Jesus is that's going to encompass the entirety of his gospel narrative. And in building our understanding of Christ, we're seeing an ongoing or continuing revelation of divine truth about Christ. So with a very broad brushstroke, we can see those first 18 verses as identifying Jesus Christ. This is what it's about. He's showing us Christ. And as we've said before, this is a good place for us to begin because he's then going to tell us this is the story of Christ. But you better know who it is we're talking about. This is what he's teaching the church. And this is what we read now in verses 15 through 18. It's building our previous understanding of that declaration. We're going to see this morning that as we look at the preeminence of Christ, we're going to look at his preexistence. We're going to look at the fullness of Christ. We're going to look at the word and how he has provided for us. Beginning in verse 15, I want us to start here. Consider with me the preexistent Christ. Having examined the incarnation of Jesus Christ in verse 14 and showing to us the uniqueness of the sonship of the Word, John continues to build upon that image by writing of the superior nature of the Word as testified by John the Baptist. As we have previously seen from verse 6, 7, and 8, John the Baptist has already been spoken of. He's already been identified in this gospel narrative. And he's going to pick up again in verse 19 and go all the way through verse 36 talking more about John the Baptist. But for a very brief moment, here in verse 15, the ministry of John the Baptist is again in view. And as noted before, each of the gospels introduced to us the story of the Messiah by starting here with the ministry of John the Baptist. And it necessarily had to be that way. Because we know that John was ordained by God to be the forerunner of Christ, to prepare the way for Christ. And because that was an ordained role, that was a purpose given to that man by God himself, it is necessarily a critical part of the gospel narrative. And as we've noted early in our study, John the Baptist still had a following of disciples by the time that John wrote this letter. And bear in mind, this gospel was written much later than the other three synoptics. This was written later in John's life and in John's ministry. And he needed to remind even the followers of John the Baptist that John the Baptist was not the one. He's not the one you should be devoting yourself to. John himself came preaching another. He came preaching, don't look at me, look at the one that is coming after me. And here, many years later, after John the Baptist, the Apostle John is still pointing believers away from the Baptist and to the one that John preached of. And in this part of John's introduction to Jesus Christ, the testimony of John the Baptist is used here to build our understanding of the preeminence of Christ, the superior nature of Christ, the incarnate God who came and dwelt among men and who is the unique Son of full of grace and truth. 
But the Apostle John repeats several times in this presentation of John the Baptist is that John himself preached the preeminence of Christ. John declared, don't look at me. Look at the one who's coming after me. And here in verse 15, John's preaching ministry is preparing people for the coming ministry of Christ. And it compels us to emphasize the superior nature of this person of Christ. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John the Baptist acknowledges in his preaching that Jesus Christ would follow his ministry, his ministry preparing the way for the Lord. But John also makes clear that this is not to suggest that he had a superior position just because he stepped into the ministry scene before Messiah did. Instead, though John started preaching first, Jesus was of higher rank. And I want you to note that that word or that expression, higher rank, will come up again in verse 30. It's a word that means in front of or before. So John is almost preaching an apparent conflict here. Jesus will follow me, but he's actually in front of me. That's literally what John is preaching. It's a declaration of the greatness of Jesus over the one appointed by God to be the preacher who would prepare the way for Messiah. And because we've already learned from our previous examination of John the Baptist that he was the greatest preacher among men, this of necessity means that Jesus is the greatest of the greatest. He is greater than John, who Jesus declared was the greatest born into humanity. So the reason for this superior rank, as John writes, is that he existed before me. Notice the wording in John's sermon. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is higher rank than I. Why? For he existed before me. Once again, from merely a human perspective, this almost seems to be a contradiction. Because we know historically who was born first. John the Baptist. Six months before Messiah would come onto the earthly scene. And therefore, when John says Jesus existed before me, he's declaring that in Jesus Christ there was a state of being that existed before I even existed. That's what John is preaching here. This is to say that before John was born, Jesus was. In verses 1 to 2, we've already seen John declare that. And this is reminiscent of what Jesus would later say of himself to the Jewish leaders of his day, as recorded in this gospel in John chapter 8 and verse 58. Jesus is dressing the disbelief of the religious rulers and the Jewish community. Jesus said these words, truly, truly, I say to you that before Abraham was born, I what? I am. It's a state of being. And that word I am is exactly what we read here in verse 15 of chapter 1 in John the Baptist's sermon. He existed. He, I am, before John ever came onto the scene. And we're going to see that in John, Jesus opens up seven I am's about himself. Seven self-declarations of his very person. It is that Greek word or from that Greek word declares I am because I always have been. 
D.A. Carson noted in his commentary that this statement of being is not only declaring that Jesus Christ pre-existed John, but it is also a declaration of the absolute primacy of Jesus Christ over John the Baptist or any other person of significance for that matter. This is a declaration not only historically of Jesus' pre-existence, but His absolute primacy. This is a good description of what we should walk away with in our examination of verse 15 with Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God, the primacy, the superiority, the preeminence belongs to Him above all others. He is the God that has always been. This is what John has been teaching over and again in these first 18 verses. This is a good place to begin, isn't it? This is the Jesus that John is going to teach us about. He is the God that has always existed. Second, as we move into verse 16, He is the inexhaustible Christ. For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Notice that word for. It's a conjunction. It joins. But it connects us with the previous statement. John is now going to explain why the supremacy of Christ? Why the preeminence of Christ? For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. And here it is almost as if John is looking for the church's affirmation. He's saying what I am declaring to you now about Jesus Christ, you should know. Why? Because you have received of His fullness. You should know this about Christ. His preeminence, His supremacy, because we all have received. He's referring to every true believer here. We all have received. And this means that we are all witnesses, you and I as believers, to the preeminence of Jesus in that every one of us as believers have received grace upon grace from His inexhaustible storehouse of grace, from His fullness of grace. It's as if John is saying to us here in verse 16, John the Baptist preached that Jesus Christ is greater than all since He existed before all and every true believer can vouch for this because you have received from Him and you know what you've received. It is endless amounts of grace, grace upon grace. The truth of Jesus Christ is that He is the source of all our blessings. We've received the precious gifts of His divine nature and therefore you and I as believers can affirm His greatness, His preeminence. We observe how John describes that which we have received from Christ. It's grace upon grace. The picture that has often been given by scholars, it's like the waves of the ocean shore. One wave lapping upon the other. That's how we receive grace. And they're almost overlapping. So much is being poured out on us. One building upon another. And even as I say these things, I suspect there's just not a few of us here this morning that are wondering about that picture. The picture of Christ and the picture of those who belong to Christ. It's possible that most of us here have gone through seasons of life that have been discouraging, filled with darkness and trouble, and you simply don't feel like grace after grace have been wafting over your life. It's at these times that we may not clearly sense those waves of grace. 
But I want to point out the words of John here could not be any more clearly stated. Of His fullness, we have all received. This reception of grace is not limited to a select few Christians. Jesus Christ pours out His divine favor on all who have received Him according to what we just read in verse 12. And it may well be that at those times of despair within our hearts that the problem is not a lack of grace washing over us again and again. It is more a problem of us discerning that the grace is there, actually seeing it and recognizing it. The problem is not with the fullness of Christ, in other words. The problem is likely more with us. And I think if we more fully understand the fullness, the inexhaustible resource of His grace, we would struggle with far fewer uncertainties in this life. We know that the grace that is extended to us from the Lord God refers to the unmerited, unearned, and please understand the undeserved blessings of God towards us. For the Christian, this grace has a richness to us, in, to, to each of us, in that it goes well beyond just the, the physical or temporal things of this life. We have received the eternal grace of God. All of humanity has experienced God's grace in some measure. We often refer to this as the common grace of God. Not that any of God's grace is any less than uncommon. But it's common to all men. But just what is this grace? And I think to understand this, we need to understand a little bit more about the dispenser of grace. If we simply look at what John has described to us about Jesus Christ in these opening verses of this Gospel narrative, we understand this Jesus is the Word. He's the revealer to us of the very nature and glory of God. He's the Creator in whom is life. And the life is the light of men. So He's life. He's light. He's the dispeller of us of the nature of God. His love, His grace, His mercy, His kindness. Consider that as Jesus creates and sustains our lives, even giving to us eternal life through the faith that we have in the Gospel, none of this is deserved by any one of us. And I don't often think that we consider the implications of that in a practical day-to-day existence. When sickness and death come, we can often take our sentiments from the world's perspective, and you know that the world will sarcastically look at those circumstances, and they say, well, if there is a God, and if He is good, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why did this tragedy occur? And honestly, we as Christians, we can fall into that thinking just a little bit. When tragedy strikes and innocent lives are lost, or where injustice occurs, causing men, women, and children to suffer greatly, even at the wrongs of others. God is so often blamed for not preventing these disasters as if any of us deserve God's protection. Do you deserve that protection? We especially get sensitive to these things when stuff happens to children, right? When life is challenged by sickness or death or wickedness, we can often ask questions why the Lord God would allow this to happen to us or to those whom we love. Seldom do we consider 
that we are living and being sustained in life as an act of grace that we do not deserve. We've often heard that highly emotional and politically charged statement that it's every child that deserves a good good education. Every child deserves a good education. It may be a very touching thought, but it is not theological. Grace would say otherwise. A good education among any other blessing is not something that we deserve. We don't deserve to live five years on this earth, let alone 95 years. We don't deserve to have good health. We don't deserve to experience goodness, kindness, and joy in this life. We don't deserve to experience righteousness or truth. The graces of life and light that are found in Jesus Christ come to us from the fullness of His grace. If any of these graces are denied us, why is it that we blame the loss of these graces on the Lord as if we deserve to receive them from Him? You see, when we understand grace and the giver of grace, it causes us to be more content with life because we realize as believers we don't deserve any of it. And yet if we're living in it, living in life in any way, living in light, it's a gift that we do not deserve. Jesus Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us to be our Savior, our Redeemer. And this He did because of His full, divine, undeserved favor towards us. The world around us is currently living by the common grace of their Creator. Jesus Christ is full of this grace. And some of this grace is gifted to the world around us. Jesus Christ is full of this grace for you and I in a redemptive way. And it would be sad for us if like the world that is described in Romans chapter 1, we receive this grace, but we don't honor the grace giver. We're not thankful to the giver of grace. When the Son of God took on flesh and set up His tent among us, He came full of grace to dispense to sinners what none of them have earned. None of them deserve. Even the knowledge of gospel truth that Jesus preached in a message, we do not deserve to hear it, let alone receive it from Him as truth. And yet, we as believers, we're receiving wave after wave of His grace. Describes the Christian experience where the undeserved blessings of God come over us in a continual and unending progression of His fullness. There are times when we allow the troubles of life to obscure it so we don't see it. But it's there. We must understand that the problem is never a lack of grace if you're a true believer. The problem is that we are not observing the graces that are present. And that grace is always, always undeserved. Of His fullness, we all have received. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is superior because of the fullness of grace that He has poured out on His church. And it brings us to verse 17. His preeminence is also seen in that He is a providing Christ. He is the Word that provides. We see this in verse 17 by these words. John writes, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In this passage, Jesus Christ is shown to be the one that has inaugurated the ministry of truth and grace that is necessary for our salvation, 
that the law of Moses could never provide. Jesus did. He could. And I think it's good for us to observe here that John is now comparing the law that Moses gave with the grace and truth that came by Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice that Moses was giving that which he did not have. The law was not Moses's. He was giving something that he didn't have to give. Remember on the mountain, he only took the stone that God had etched with his finger, walked down the mountain and handed it to the people. But the law was not Moses. We call it the law of Moses, but it wasn't his to give. Christ, on the other hand, notice in verse 17, the grace and truth came by him. It was his to give catered to his people, in other words, his own attributes of grace and truth. It's what theologians call the communicable attributes of God. He gave of himself. He gave to us his grace and his truth, something Moses could never do in the giving of the law. The fullness of that nature is being described here. The inexhaustible supply which he draws from, supplying blessing after blessing or grace upon grace, as verse 16 has just shown us, now in verse 17, the grace and truth that flows to us from Jesus, who gives of himself, is contrasted with the law that Moses could only deliver to the people. It wasn't his to give. Prior to the cross of Christ, the chosen people of God, Israel, only found hope in the law as was given by Moses. And you remember, Moses was regarded as something of a savior to the people of Israel. He prefigured the Messiah in that he was the God-appointed deliverer of God's people. The law given by Moses was not only the identity of the Jewish community, but they regarded that law as their access into the kingdom of God. As they held to the requirements of the law, it was assumed by Israel that they would be assured of eternal life in the kingdom. The problem here is that not a single one of them could fully keep the law. They couldn't be good keepers of it. And this, as John is pointing out here, is really teaching us why the law came. It wasn't coming as a means of salvation. It only came to the people of God to prepare them for Messiah. Paul wrote of this extensively in the book of Galatians, but I want to highlight Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. Paul makes this declaration. Therefore, the law, meaning the law of Moses, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. So why did God give the law? It was meant to be a tutor, or that which leads us to Christ, the Messiah. That was its purpose. Now, in that day and age, a tutor was more than just a teacher of children. He was a servant in the household that was appointed to be an overseer or caretaker of the children. He would teach the children. But this tutor would also instruct the children on manners and etiquette and how to function and handle money outside in the commerce of the community around them. He would take that youth, and in their immaturity, he would bring them along to adulthood. The picture that Paul wants us to understand is, this is what the law did for humanity, for the people of God. It took them from their spiritual immaturity, their human depravity, their sinfulness, and it would bring them to maturity 
to see Christ. It would bring them to the Messiah. God provided the law as an act of His grace, to be sure, but it was to point men and women to His salvation in Christ. John MacArthur writes, the law was not an instrument of grace. It was a gracious act of God to give the law, but in itself it was not an instrument of grace. It was only to bring them to that instrument of grace, which is Christ Himself. The grace of God to forgive even those Old Testament saints under the law was based on what His Son would one day accomplish on the cross. Those Old Testament saints were not saved by the law. They were... Sadly, too many of them were counting on their own righteousness to merit saving favor with God, but on the truth, but in truth, their salvation could only come by faith in Christ, the Messiah that would come. And for this reason, Jesus Christ is superior. He is preeminent over the law. He's superior to Moses, the lawgiver, because salvation cannot come by law, because not a single one of us, except Christ alone, could be a perfect keeper of the law. And I can only come, or this salvation can only come by the truth and grace found in Jesus Christ, who is the preeminent Word. And He's preeminent because He's incarnate Word. He's the preeminent Word. But now as we move into our third heading in verse 18, I want us to also see He is the unveiled Word. He's the incarnate Word. He's the preeminent Word. He is also the unveiled Word. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. You know, at first glance, this 18th verse can be somewhat problematic for us. And I say this for a couple of reasons. Number one, we are given several accounts in the Old Testament where it appears that specific individuals were permitted to see God. And second, here in John chapter 1, we have just learned that Jesus Christ is God and His glory was visibly seen by His disciples. So when we read verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, it can be a little troublesome or problematic. With regard to the first concern, the Old Testament appearances of God are to be understood as theophanies or visions that represented the likeness of God. One example would be in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah was given that vision of Christ seated on his throne with his flowing robes. And when Isaiah saw that, he wrote in Isaiah 6, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I would identify with that if I was in Isaiah's position and I was given a theophany or a vision of God. I would say as well, I have seen the King. I've seen God. And when we read a declaration like that, even in the Old Testament, it must be understood in light of what the rest of Scripture declares about God. One truth from Scripture is that God is spirit and He doesn't have a physical body. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, and this came up in the first hymn that we sang, it's a quote right from Paul, writing to 1 Timothy. Paul describes God as eternal, immortal, and what? Invisible. God is spirit. And He is not literally visible to the physical human eye. And this is why Jesus could say, at least in part, 
in John chapter 6 and verse 46 that no one has seen the Father at any time except Him. Because we haven't seen the Spirit of God. But in addition to the physical impossibility of God being visible to men, the Word of God tells us that if it were possible, if God were to unveil His spiritual being to us, we would not be able to survive the glory of His appearance. Now, I want to recall Moses wanting to see the glory of God from Exodus chapter 33, because this gives us a good example of that. Remember Moses said to God, I pray you, show me your glory. Now that statement, that request, was right in between the two givings of the law, tablets. Remember the first set of tablets got broken up. Then they gave, God gave the second set that was to declare the law to Israel. Right in between those two stories, we find Moses making this request of God, I pray you, show me your glory. That's an interesting request. Because as we read about God's interaction with Moses, Moses had already seen God. At least that's what the story of, of, of Exodus tells us. And you remember when Moses would go in and have those conversations with God, he would come out and his, his face would be glowing, right? Shining because of the, the brilliance of the glory of God. And it says in those conversations that Moses would speak with God face-to-face, as a man would speak face-to-face with another man. Therefore, when Moses has this request of God, he wants to see a fuller revelation of God's glory. Even Moses knew then, in those conversations with God, he was giving a veiled likeness of God. He wasn't seeing the full vision of God. And so when Moses says to the Lord, I pray you, show me your glory, he's wanting a fuller revelation of the glory of God. He knew he was getting a veiled image of God. He wasn't seeing the whole deal. And he wanted it. And God answered Moses by saying, you cannot see my face, Moses, for no man can see me and live. You see, we can't physically see God because He's a spirit, but if God were to make possible for us to see Him, we wouldn't survive it. God is spirit and he can't physically be seen by men, but if God were to permit any of us to see him, the fullness of his glory, his spiritual being, our life would immediately be consumed. So Moses, like Isaiah, were only given a vision of God, a theophany, a representative appearance of God's spiritual glory. And you remember what God did permit Moses to see? He said, what I'll do for you, I'll stuff you into the crack in the rock here, and I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to hold my hand over you as I do, so that you'll survive this experience, and then you'll be able to glance at my backward parts as I'm passing by, and that's all Moses was permitted to see, so that he would not be consumed. When John writes that no one has seen God at any time, He means that God is not visible to man physically, nor could man survive seeing God in the fullness of His glory spiritually. God had only been seen by visions or representations. And that kind of covers the first concern to some degree. The second problem, going back to verse 18, is dealing with the visibility of God that John is portrayed in Jesus Christ. He's been spending 
17 verses describing that Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, came into this world and we beheld His glory. That's what it says in verse 14. We saw it. And then in verse 18, He says, no one has seen God. But isn't the incarnate Word God? Didn't He say we saw Him? And I believe this is exactly the point of what He's saying in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time until the incarnate God came. Now we have seen. Now we've seen the Lord of glory. It was not possible for men to see. God made it possible in the sending of His Son in a body of flesh. And He dwelt among us and we saw Him. Now this may seem like a contradiction, but again, I believe this is the point that John is building on in these first 18 verses. No one has been able to see God in the fullness of His spiritual glory. But now God's glory has been unveiled for us to see in the incarnate Word, in this unique sonship. God has made Himself visible in His incarnate Son. And this is the whole force of what's being written here in verse 18 compared to verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus Christ is the only begotten from the Father. And we assume from this reference that the unique sonship of Jesus Christ is in view here. But then in verse 18, he changes that a bit. Jesus Christ is the only begotten God. If you have an NIV, you don't see those words. The unique Son is the unique God. And when the Son of God left His heavenly realm of glory and took on flesh and dwelt among us, God had unveiled Himself in such a way that to see Jesus is to see God. Now, again, some translations have verse 18 reading, like the NIV, the only, the one and only Son. However, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts use the word theos after only begotten. And some translators thought this would be too confusing because the only begotten should be connected with the Son, it was assumed. So those words were changed, and I much prefer the literal here because of its impact. The original manuscripts apparently declared the only begotten theos. God only begotten. The reference here is that to the Trinity, the second person of that Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit. So most conservative scholars agree that it is best to stay with John's literal wording, the only begotten God, referring to God the Son. John writes this description so that we can clearly understand that to see Jesus is to see God because He is the Word of God. Jesus made this exact declaration to Philip, and we've quoted this before, but you look at John 14 and verse 9. This is what Jesus said, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. Once again, we understand this unveiled vision of God in its context, Jesus was not saying to look at His physical body is to understand the likeness of God. In fact, if you go back to Isaiah 53, that physical presence of Messiah, the body that God sent His Son into was not beautiful. It wasn't attractive. In Isaiah 53 it says, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was not a handsome man. 
So John is not saying to look at that physical appearance is to understand the likeness of God. In addition to that, you recall that after Jesus was crucified and rose again, that physical appearance changed, didn't it? He was not recognized for what he was before. So the point that we want to see in John 1.18 is that seeing God the Father in Jesus was not a physical vision here, but rather it was beholding the divine character in Jesus. It was observing His power and His miracles, hearing the truth of His teaching, observing the graciousness of His words as we read about in Luke. If we want to see the gracious character of God, we look to the only begotten Son. Because in Him is the unveiled vision of the divine nature. And this is what John means when he writes that Jesus Christ is the God who has explained the Father. There in verse 18. He shows Jesus as existing in the bosom of the Father, which is a description of the closeness and the intimacy, the fellowship that is between Father and Son within the Godhead. Jesus is the only unique Son. He's not like the other sons. You and I as sons, we've been adopted. We're not like Him. He is the unique, the one and only. And He exists in perfect fellowship, in loving communion, in the bosom of the Father. He knows the Father thoroughly and lovingly. And therefore, Jesus is qualified to explain Him to us. And this is why you and I can say we have seen the Father because we've seen His Son through the written Word that's been opened up to us by the Holy Spirit. We read the Word and we see the Son and to see the Son is to see the Father. We see His character. We see His power. We see His glory, His majesty. To look and behold the Son is to see the Father. The Word explained there. Going back to verse 18, saying that the Son explained the Father. That word comes from the Greek word exegesis. It means to draw out from. It's a way of translating or interpreting the Word of God. We're to be exegetes. We draw out from the Word of God that which what the Word of God is saying to us. That's what it truly means. We should not be eisegetical in our approach. We shouldn't read into the Word what we think it should say. We should draw out from. Jesus Christ is the only one who can exegete God because He is the only begotten God who always abides in close, intimate, and perfect fellowship with God the Father. God's self-expression, His self-disclosure. It's His Son. Jesus Christ is the perfect exegete to the Father. Why is Jesus Christ the preeminent Word? Because He has unveiled the visible glory of God. He's done that in His own life. He's done that in His own person, His character, to see Jesus for who He is, to see God the Father. Because He is the only begotten God who knows His Father intimately in love and in fellowship. He alone unveils for us the glory of God in Himself. Jesus Christ is the visible display of God. So He is preexistent. He's always been. He has an inexhaustible storehouse of divine blessing. He provides the saving and sanctifying grace and truth that we need. And we see here He is the Christ that unveils to us the glory of the Father so that we can say 
To see the Son is to see the Father. To know the Son is to know the Father. In this section of John's Gospel, this part of the prologue or the beginning, the introduction to the Gospel, the theme that we have followed is the glory of this One who John calls the Word, the glory of the Word, from verse 14 to 18. And this glory speaks to us of the visible radiance of God's righteousness and His truth. Think about the shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem. And the radiance of God's glory that opened up when heaven opened up to reveal the announcement that God's Son had arrived on this planet. John doesn't give us those kind of specific details in the actual birth of Jesus Christ. Since John is a later Gospel work, no doubt John has read the other three synoptics and he said those guys included those details to some degree. But by the time he writes this Gospel, John and the other church leaders had witnessed a great deal of heresy and distortion regarding this Savior that they knew. And so he's got to start his Gospel a little bit differently. He said, you need to know who this Jesus is. He starts his narrative in a very good place at the beginning because that's where Christ existed. He was in the beginning. He was God. He was with God. He is the Creator God. He's the giver of life. He is the Word of God. Made flesh, the incarnate God. The only unique begotten Son of God. He's the giver of all blessings. Grace upon grace flow from Him. He's the giver of those things. And to see Jesus is to unveil the very glory of God Himself. This is where John begins. And if you and I are to correctly understand this text, we need to walk away with a few truths. And I'm going to give you just three of many that we could walk away with this morning. But these are important maxims for us to live by. And if you're discerning and you, you've been on the other uh, messages that we've worked on, you're going to see there's a little bit of overlap in the three uh, declarations that I want to give to you this morning. So let's begin with number one. Grace and truth work together in our lives as blessings from Christ. Last week, we ended our study understanding that grace and truth must exist together. I'm going to build on that this morning by saying in a practical way, they need to be lived out together. I wish to emphasize in this that there's a practical way for Christian living seen in grace and truth that are found in Christ. Jesus Christ has repeatedly shown by John as the Word who is full of grace and truth. And He gives of that fullness to His church. And this means that truth and grace must of necessity be working together in our lives. And we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that truth only refers to doctrinal statements. The truth to Christ is much broader than that. It's the truth of who we are. The truth of our dependency on Christ. The truth of the Spirit. The truth of God Himself. We may want and even demand grace, but truth can sometimes be a different matter. If you look on the back side of your note sheet, notice the quote that I put there from Arthur Pink. In our day, he writes, there are many who admire the grace which came by Jesus Christ and would consent to be saved by it, provided this could be without the intrusion of truth. But this cannot be. Those who reject the truth reject grace. There are many that come and say, I want Jesus. I like the sound of grace, unmerited favor. Give that saving stuff, that eternal life to me. 
but they reject the truth. Living by the truth. That Jesus speaks truth into our lives. And the very laws that Christ gives to us are the truths that we are to live by. If you want nothing to do with those, how can you say you want His grace? That's what Pink is pointing out. The practical application may be for us that we want those daily ways of God's unmerited favor to roll over us, but not so much the truth of His righteousness and justice. Should the Christian live foolishly, he may still want grace, and he wants to be spared the consequences of his foolishness. He may even want to be spared the chastening of the Lord, who will guide us according to His truth. But the one who is full of grace and truth knows that we need both. We need both grace and truth. And in His, the giver of grace, in His perfect wisdom, He's going to insist that His children receive both grace and truth. We're not merely to be children of grace. We are children of divine truth as well. Second, understanding the giver of grace more fully will lead to contented Christian living. It must of necessity lead us there. This is an understanding that knows the fullness of grace that we have received from Him. It's an understanding that all that we have received is of grace and not a bit of God's blessings that we receive is deserved. We don't earn or merit any of it. To know Jesus as light and life, to know Him as the God of love, to know Him as the source of grace and truth, this and much more is going to teach us that we daily feed, we daily live, exist by His grace. And if we should lack anything, it's not because Jesus failed to give us what we deserve, but rather what His truth has determined for us. So we can look at the circumstances of life and we can say, God, why have you done this to me? Because it's at that moment we've forgotten what grace is. That we don't deserve any of it. And whatever He pours out into our lives according to His grace and truth is what He, by His wisdom, determines we need for that moment. And I think in addition to that, we as parents need to be careful here that we don't live just by truth and not by grace. If all we do as parents is teach our children the law of truth and it becomes an issue of legalism, what you're going to produce is temporary Christians in your children. And the day will come when they're going to walk away. We need to raise our children in grace as well as truth. They must work together. They must work together. Understanding the giver of grace is going to lead to more contented Christian living. And third, this I hope is obvious in our study of the Gospel of John, a greater Christology. And what I mean by that is a theological understanding of who Jesus Christ is must produce a greater worship of Christ. We must never forget the importance of worship as we grow in our understanding, our theology of Christ. Remember how the Word of God condemned the unsaved in this world for knowing God, but not honoring Him as God or being thankful to Him for His power and His nature as Paul writes about in Romans 1. And you, if you and I are to study the book of John together, one practical fruit that must come of this is that we grow to be better worshipers of Christ. 
And this means that we daily are more thankful to Him for the waves of grace that are continually coming into our lives, washing over us. It means that we will live together in greater satisfaction of His full supply of truth and grace. It's also going to mean that we're going to grow in our service to Him. Not to merit His grace, but to serve Him because He's worthy of our devotion. Our worship should grow if our understanding of Christ grows. So I pray and I believe in my heart that as we study this gospel narrative together, the richness of our worship to Him will also grow. Our service to Him, our love for Him, our devotion, our obedience to Him, our care for His family. It can't help but grow the more we see Jesus and admire Him for who He is. Because as we see Jesus, we are seeing God Himself. Father in heaven, I thank you again for this marvelous testament of your Son that your Spirit drove the Apostle John to write for your church and for your people. John concluded this narrative by saying to know, to understand the Son and to believe in Him is to find life in His name, life in who He is. And we're thankful for that testimony. But would you take us as a church and as we learn more of your Son, would you grow us in the knowledge of Christ, in our service, our worship, our love for Christ? Give us a greater contentment in life because we understand and know more fully this giver of grace. We know more fully what grace is. And I pray that our worship will reflect not only our service to you, but our service to one another. Grow us in how we love each other because we've grown to love you more. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.